Hello everyone and welcome to the 91st episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom which is coming to you on the 31st of August 2023. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we have some letters of comment for you all. We got some letters of comment. First off, we got letters about... Oh, no, yeah. We got letters from Chris Garcia and Abigail. And it turns out that Chris Garcia and Abigail Nussbaum are going to have to have a cage fight. Oh, that sounds good. This is news to both of them. But we basically got various uh, letters about AI. Thank you, everyone, who wrote in about that. Chris says he's looking forward to Asteroid City. And Abigail said that Liz would not succeed in baiting her with praise for the last Blade Priest. So your attempt to hook an Abigail has failed, Liz. Uh, Well, has it failed or did she write a letter? (laughs) See, because I was like, I was like, it's a bold move to put a PS about not being baited at the start of the successful reeling in. Uh, Yeah, I think I think it is a bold move. I think Liz, I think Liz has caught and that's a fishing trip that's gone well for you, Liz. Yeah, to be fair to Abigail, she has read other things on the Kitchies Red Tentacles shortlist, and I have not, so I can't say if they're better. And for all I know, they may well they may well be better, but I still enjoyed it, so there. Hey. She also explains at some length that um, I was being too one note about Luddites, and I think when I talk about Luddites, I do know something of the history, so I was including the fact that the Luddites weren't totally daft about um their protests it was it was reasonable i still think they're wrong and and abigail thinks they're totally reasonable which is fine i think we can we can have differing opinions laurie anderson also says hugok to thorpe girl so um so that's good liz has done a thumbs up and a triumphant facial expression laurie so um i mean i, I can't hug them because on the other side of the planet but you know metaphorically yes I still haven't got over the fact that she's Laurie Anderson. I just want to go, oh, 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 every time. I assume that's referencing something I am too young to know about. Yeah, 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 it's oh, Superman. I see. Alison will provide links for the show notes. No, I found a link. That's actually, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. Well, there's, there's a joke for all of our older listeners. We have plenty of older listeners. Ah! Uh. I'm going to clip. I'm going to clip that out. That might be a useful thing to have on the soundboard. <laughs> just, it might be useful if I have a button that I can press that just says in Liz's voice, there's a joke for our older listeners. Um, <laughs> that could be useful at conventions. Um, okay, guys, look, you don't have to remind me of my impending <laughs> senility all of the time. What we've done here, listeners, is we've kept strictly on topic and uh, we've not digressed. So that's good. Um, Right. Then we did get letters about six wakes. We heard from Christopher J. Garcia. We heard from Laurie Anderson. We heard from Edward Moreland. And then we heard from Ali Ali Baker Brooks and David Curry about um, problems they have with the representation of their expertises in culture. So, yes, I think... It's fair to say that some people liked the book and some people didn't. You've just summarised the whole episode, John. Why didn't we bother with it? <laughs> but I did hear from at least two people who did, who had not read the book who did then really enjoy it. So I was glad because even if you read it and you hated it, I'm very sorry to you. But if you read it and you loved it, hooray, hello. Yeah, Emily January really liked it. So that was 
she read it because of our episode and she really liked it. And I was like, eh. and also having having just finished the spare man, this is a spoiler for our Hugo episode. Actually, I may need to make this joke in the Hugo episode, which is I think I may just not like books with food printers in them. Fair enough. Fair enough. Shall we talk about the Clark Award? Yes, we can talk about the Clark Award. On the topic of books. Um, so, the Clark Award was awarded. Hurrah! Liz, do you want to tell us about this? So, the Clark Award was awarded this year uh, in a nice ceremony that I did not attend. It was in the UK. Do we want to explain what the Clark Award is for our um, newer viewers? New listeners. Oh, I suppose I could do that. So... The R.C. Clarke Award is an award for the best science fiction novel first published in the UK. It's been running for, ooh, I don't know how long it's been running for now, since about 1987, I think. And it has, it's a judge award, a juried award. So there's a jury which is made up of judges from the British Science Fiction Association, the Science Fiction Foundation, and currently the Sci-Fi London Film Festival. And so these judges read... Nearly every single science fiction novel published in the UK in a year, they do have to be submitted. So, of course, for publishers who don't submit them, but generally they're getting a submission list of kind of up to 100 books. And then they pick a short list of six and then they get together and pick a winner. And the winner is, it has been announced previously, I think earlier in the year, kind of in May or June when that was when the Sci-Fi London Film Festival was. But this year it was announced in August and the winner was Venomous Slump Sucker by Ned Bowman, as I believe mentioned by John as his sort of stealth pick on a previous episode. But as it happens, I managed to read all of the Clark shortlist before, although I did not read every single one of them before the award was announced. I fell slightly short. Were you on a long intercontinental holiday involving a lot of reading, Liz? I did go on a long intercontinental holiday involving a lot of reading, which is why I've read about 20 books since our last episode. So I've got lots of material for picks now, really, maybe for the rest of the year. And so I did read, I think I read three or four of them while on that holiday, which was uh, very nice. Thank you to Neil Harrison, who lent me all of those. And then I read the other two myself. And yeah, I would... So the Clark Award always comes up with a shortlist where, I don't know, it's it's interesting because there's usually some overlap with other awards, but quite often there will be kind of some left field books, quite often ones that were published by more literary publishers or not marketed as science fiction, quite often something completely out of left field where I have no idea at all why that book has been nominated. Sometimes it's quite fun because you do know who the judges are and then you can, you know, try and wonder what they saw in a book you think was terrible but I think it usually picks a pretty good book as the winner and this year I would agree I really liked Venomous Lump Sucker by Ned Bowman which is about you know the the titular of Venomous Lump Suckers are a type of fish which you know are being studied and maybe more intelligent than previously thought uh, and this is a big thing because we are in this sort of climate change dystopia where part of the economy now involves extinction credits and, you know, paying if you drive a species extinct and kind of the whole market that would just horribly inevitably spring up around this. Like, OK, so if I was predicted to make 15 species extinct, but actually only made 10 extinct, do I now get some some tax credits back for not making them extinct? How do we incentivize companies and nations not to top down forests? The price of these extinction credits fluctuates, which means there's a kind of really comedy segment where they go to a place where 
the last known example of a species is is being um, kept. And when the extinction credits weren't worth very much, no one was really paying very much attention to it because they didn't get very much money for keeping them alive. And now extinction credits have become extremely expensive. And so they're all like, yeah, we're going to get lots more money. But oh, wait, some of those species maybe are not quite as alive as we hoped and we thought no one was checking. It's basically a kind of funny dystopian counterpart to, I would say, to Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future. Because there, which can kind of posit a sort of, you know, different credit system and incentives and things and have them work as intended. This is like how you get all the credits and systems and have them work in a kind of the way you can imagine they might do under our current capitalist system. So I really enjoyed it. Don did not like it as much, I think. Sorry, Don. My reaction to this is actually very similar to Liz's reaction to Six Wakes, where I liked the ideas and I thought the execution was quite poor. I think my main problem with it is it's a book that posits that the UK is completely irrelevant and yet the entire world knows the UK by a special name and the UK turns out to be pivotal to the plot and it's like you've got to pick one either we're special or we're not but he kind of has his cake and eat it there <laughs> we've been not we've been not doing that for a long time no I know and I'm like you can't criticize British exceptionalism while also practicing British exceptionalism that doesn't land for me which I found very frustrating. I'm a bit worried it won because I thought it was okay and I'm a bit worried I'm going to like all the others even less. But I haven't read the others yet, so we'll see. You have read at least one of them, right? Yeah, I like The Anomaly a lot. Um, I understand why it didn't win, but I like the... I like the fact it doesn't commit to an interpretation. It's a ve- it's a very it's on the very literary end of, of of science fiction. I think in that it is much more idea interested in the ideas than the mechanics of the ideas. But also, it's um oh, what are they called the o o o. Hang on, if I go to the anomalies Wikipedia page, it will tell me from the Olupian work, which is one where you basically firstly it's very French, and secondly it's one where you like adopt faux faux constraints on your writing as your writing and so like it is also a literary experiment which i could see some people might not have gone with this is the same group that like writes books in palindromes or without using the letter e or or stuff like that but i haven't read the others um i've heard mixed reports i'm looking forward to the coral bones because i've heard good things about that i believe that one of the things about the way that the clark award is structured is that the judges always come from very different perspectives so judges meetings are allegedly extremely angry but kind of they've got a they've got a lot of they've got a they're not angry they're just disappointed (laughs) they're disappointed i think that's individual judges are in fact disappointed because they come in going one of these books is much better than all of the others and then and then it turns out that all of the judges believe that but they (laughs) they are picking different horses yeah, I mean, I enjoyed the anomaly, but it is basically like a sort of, I like it sort of character extrapolation stuff of what would actually be the effect on people if a certain thing happened. But it's science fiction feels like it's got the middle bit where it sort of lays out a bunch of potential science fiction like explanations for why a particular thing has happened that just feels like a big info dump in the middle of the novel in a way, which I wasn't very interested in. It has the same problem as Six Wakes that Edward Morland uh, was annoyed by, which is the other problem it has is that all of the people from the religions basically agree. (laughs) And Edward Morland says that he feels that this is 
unrealistic i think it is but i think i feel part of the problem there is if you try to do a realistic take of what all the religions would do in reaction to certain very difficult uh ecumenical questions that that would be and you'd end up writing a 26 novel epic it's a lot to grapple with i can understand why authors don't like doing so but um yeah, I mean, you're going for plausibility here that they have managed to kind of pick a representative per religion, which would probably be a whole novel in itself of, like, who would you pick as a yep. representative for each world religion? Especially as, like, as someone who grew up in the Church of England. Like, you can't even... There's not... I mean, there's not even just two different groups in the Church of England with opinions. Like, it's fractal, right? There's disagreements all the way down. I think that's all true about the anomaly, but I think I liked it better than venomous lump sucker but i still didn't think it was great i thought it was solid i think that's my main the 2022 list had so many books that i thought were great on it <laughs> and the 2023 list is like oh i was excited and now i'm not so i don't know we'll see maybe after i've read them i'll have a different opinion so i would say they break down into there's three that i would recommend you read and there's three where i'd say you probably don't need to bother or i was less excited by them and the anomaly is one of the three I enjoyed, along with Venomous Lumpsucker and The Coral Bones by E.J. Swift. And then the other three, The Red Scholar's Wake by Alad Bodard. I already talked about a few episodes ago. There's Pluto Shine by Lucy Kissick and also Metronome by Tom Watson. And I would say they're all kind of flawed in one way or another. And I would have been a little disappointed if any of them had one. But they didn't. So I'm pretty happy with that. I think we, we talked about Pluto Shine at all. Uh, we talked about Pluto Shine before. I'm surprised it was on the shortlist, and I would have been quite astonished if it had won. It would be a remarkable departure for the Clark Award judges if it had won. It, it's interesting because the 2022 shortlist had two I detested and three I loved, and one I thought was okay, but I understood why it was the winner. But this one just seemed to be much more... It seems to be in many ways a much safer shortlist... I don't think there's anything I will truly detest and I don't think there's anything that will completely capture me. It seems to be much more kind of regression to the mean than previous ones and I don't know whether that says something about 2023 or 2022 as a year for the genre because the other thing is the, I mean spoilers for our Hugo book discussion uh, episode listeners, but I think the same could be argued of the Hugo finalists this year as well where I don't think there's one that really astounded me. A lot of people are saying a lot of people are saying, gosh, isn't it a weak year for the Hugo shortlist? We are, if we conclude that, we will not be alone in our thoughts. But I've only read two of them so far. But I've read two of them. That's amazing. Yeah. No, well done. Well done. And the one that I've seen a lot of people say should have been on these shortlists was the Moonday Letters, which, which as we previously discussed, I liked a lot, but I thought it had flaws. I don't think I've read any books that I would give five out of five on Goodreads from 2022 yet. Maybe there's one lurking that I just haven't heard about. Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mantle. Oh, yeah, I haven't read that one yet. It is, on my, it is on my radar, as is... I don't give books star ratings, really, because I kind of think, well, a lot of books are just kind of not, not a book that's being written for somebody like me. But um, Sea of Tranquility is absolutely a book that's being written for people like me. And if I gave star ratings, I'd give it at five stars because it's short and thoughtful. The other one that I'm looking forward to reading, which I think I will love, is The Spear Cuts Through Water, which I have not yet read. Yeah, you loved The Vanished Birds. I did love The Vanished Birds, but it was very good. People say The Spear Cuts Through Water is better than The Vanished Birds. I have not read either of them. Anyway, books in it. But I'm glad you liked I'm glad you liked 
Venomous Lopsucker, Liz. I, um, yes. Hurrah. And I will just say, yes, the final, the final book that we, because we haven't mentioned it on this podcast at all yet, is Metronome by Tom Watson, um, which is very much your literary science fiction pick. It's about two people who have committed some mysterious crime and their sentence is to live alone on an island. Or is it? And every day they must take pills that get dispensed three times a day to keep them alive, basically. And it's about what happens when they come up to supposedly the end of their sentence and relief does not arrive. And you learn more about their backstory and why they're on the island. And it's fine. It just feels a bit like not very new, not to spoil too much, but it does turn into a fairly standard dystopian reason for why these two have been exiled to an island and then it all goes a bit off the rails at the end. I wouldn't recommend seeking it out unless you're being a Clark shortlist completist this year. And then on the topic of awards, the Hugo Voter Packet has been released. Yes, so a lot of people said that they were having a lot of trouble downloading and that was because Chengdu um, hadn't sorted its certificates out, but they have sorted that all out now and I found it straightforward to download. Some of the downloads are huge and I'm, you know, I always cut slack to the best graphic story category because if you significantly reduce the size of those files then you also reduce the the quality of them past probably what people really want um but there's two enormous files one of which is i think the episode of the expanse that has been um this is a finalist has been included in full but I wouldn't recommend anybody watch that if they haven't watched the previous 197 episodes of The Expanse or how many ever many they are. So I'm not sure what use the two and a half gigabytes there is for you. But in best related work, um, there's a four gigabyte download that is the uncompressed audiobook of Terry Pratchett, A Life with Footnotes by Rob Wilkins. It's narrated by Rob Wilkins and it's lovely to have it in the packet. I think that might be a first, supplying the audiobook edition as well as the print versions. Love it. But they could probably have compressed that. Uncompressed audio is quite big. Yeah. Yeah, I can see. So I can see what they're going for. So I would say also I had a problem downloading the packet at the start because the links would not automatically open when you clicked on them. You had to basically go and open them in a new tab because the HTTP HTTPS was messed up. But I also had some very slow downloads um, and I'm not sure why, but it meant I actually haven't downloaded best related work yet because... I know it's going to be a slow download and I don't listen to audiobooks. So I am thinking, look, in future, if you're going to have like anything which is or maybe over a gig for a certain thing, then make it optional. I don't need two and a half gigs of The Expanse. It's very nice, but I've seen it. I don't need an audiobook I'm never going to listen to. And it'd be fine if they were, you know, hosted somewhere incredibly fast. Like previous ones, I think, have been hosted on Amazon's like hosting system um, and have been very quick to download. But these were quite slow. And so I don't want to just sort of sit there downloading a bunch of files I don't need. Also, all the downloads are called Hugo Packet. <laughs> so I have like Hugo Packet folders 1 through 20 or something. But on, on the contents of the Hugo Packet, I can link to it. But um, our occasional correspondent, um, Ersatz Culture, has put together a page which tells you what is in the voter pack for all the fiction categories. So not for every category, but I think just for... 
the fiction and some of and I think best dramatic or is it oh it might be everything it might be everything but it basically tells you what you get in there is it a partial version a complete version pdf epub uh what language is it in and then a few notes and that is quite useful to see what has been what has been presented in every category you can see that basically you get complete versions of all the novels but only if you go to NetGalley and request one of them. And also some of them are only in PDF and not EPUB, which is a tiny bit annoying to me because I would much rather read things in EPUB and I can't think it is that beneficial to stop piracy to give me a complete book in PDF, but only part of it in EPUB. So it seems a bit strange. I don't understand the logic where you put it in PDF and not in EPUB. I can understand the logic of not providing it because you think some of the Hugo electorate might buy it. And I guess by putting it in PDF and not EPUB, you think that people who are annoyed enough by PDFs will buy the EPUB instead. But like, it just seems very strange to me. I don't, I don't really understand the logic. And if it is piracy-based, that makes even less sense to me because they must be aware these books are already out there. They're out there as soon as they're published. Like the Hugos is not how these works are making it into, into the Seven Seas. I mean, I would buy the ebook if I thought they were books that I, if they were books I would otherwise gonna probably buy anyway, then I would go and buy the ebook. But I think they might be books which I may not otherwise have bought. So I'm not gonna go straight out of there and buy the ebooks when I can. I can read the PDFs. I just prefer to have them in ebook so they can go on my e-reader. That's exactly it, right? Like I'm I'm gonna read the e I'm gonna read the PDF and be grumpy. I'm not gonna spend money. I'm just gonna be grumpy, and that seems like the the weird. <laughs> You should want me to be grumpy when I read your book. I will get it. Some of the books you get to the long end of the long extracts and it says, do ask for the whole of this book on NetGalley. And I have asked for some of these and I have not yet been sent any. This is one of these when I was doing the Hugo Packet thing. One of the reasons we dislike NetGalley is that there's a kind of secret, if you are in the US, caveat to NetGalley. Because mostly if people are not in the US the publishers will not give it to you. So so you're disenfranchising your non-US voters. I don't I mean I don't like NetGalley very much. So I I don't too much mind the NetGalley thing. I think the problem with the NetGalley thing is that you can't just log in and make an account. Now you have to make an an account and fill in your whole profile and say whether you're like a reviewer or what and put in like the website where you post your reviews. Like you can't just sign up as a Hugo voter who is interested in only getting Hugo voter packet things. You have to sign up like as a full member to get it and i I did get the one i requested but like it's just quite a lot of extra faff because i had to basically log in and say oh well i'm a i'm i'm a podcaster and i might podcast it we do in fact talk about books on our hugo finalist podcast now so if anyone would like to send me books please feel free (laughs) but that's kind of what annoys me about the net galley thing which is they're like request this on that galley and it's like but how if you're just someone who is a hugo voter and does not have a podcast and does not like have a blog where they talk about the books they read i don't get the impression you're likely to be accepted so they're basically saying if you're an important member of the community click this button and we'll give it to you but if you're one of the plebs you can't have it sorry and i'm like the whole point of the voter packet is it's good because all the voters get the packet and so i would rather it didn't have this bifurcation so when we did the packet we basically if people said Oh, they can ask through NetGalley. We were like, well, you're going to give it to everyone, right? And they were like, absolutely. Oh, that's good. When people wrote to us and said, this has not come through for NetGalley, which was invariably because they weren't in the US, we would write back to the publishers and say, right, 
You're going to send them an EPUB then. Here's their email address. <laughs> and and I did quite a lot of because one of the reasons that the Hugo Verge packet was a ton of work was that we did quite a lot of managing around the edges through the Hugo packet help. The other thing we did was stick um, whatever their download was over a gigabyte. We just stuck it on a streaming site and pointed people at it. We're not going to, we, we didn't let people download four gigabytes of, of you know, expanse episode. I, I mean, I, I know that I think the download should be optional, but as someone who always downloads all of the massive things, um, I'm quite glad that they, uh, that they are there because I like downloading them. So just to say on some of the other things, so for instance, Best Novella is there entirely in EPUB, which is nice, and therefore I'll probably read that entire category. Quite excited by that. Um, one story in Best Novelette uh, has a full uh, Chinese translation. One novelette that is uh, was in the Chinese language is only available in, in Chinese, unfortunately. So that's a bit of a shame. But in Best Short Story, it looks like five out of the six nominees are available in both languages, which is very nice. So actually, this is, this is going to be really nice. I was worried that I would not be able to have any opinions on some of these categories because there were stories I couldn't get to, but actually I will be able to read most of the nominees in these categories. I think it's worth saying, I think for Once and Future, the graphic story where Volume 4 has been nominated, I think the entire work is in there. And I read the first two volumes while on holiday and pretty enjoyed it. So now I'm going to reap the benefits of the Hugo's and read all the rest. Everything else in graphic story seems to be there completely. Best related work, there's a bunch of stuff. I guess the only one where it might be hard to judge is best series. You get complete works for two of them. And for three of them, you have to try and request copies on NetGalley. And for one of them, you there aren't any NetGalley request links. So it'll be interesting to see if that has any... Well, I bet we can't really tell if that has any effect on the voting. But I think that is very nice, particularly as tiny spoilers for our Hugo episode. But I read uh, Thames and Muir's Nona the Ninth. And if you have not read Gideon the Ninth and Harrow the Ninth, I think you'll be completely confused by Nona the Ninth. So that's going to be an interesting one. Does having all the material you need in the best series packet help you in best novel if your novel is quite a difficult entry point? John, have you read Gideon the Ninth and Harrow the Ninth? Yes, obviously. Uh, brilliant. Um, I was hoping you'd be a guinea pig. I want someone who hasn't read him to read Nona. It's time for our new segment, which is called What Does My Wife Think About the State of the Field of Science Fiction? Da 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 da. Hey! Jingle. So basically, Espanya was going to read Nona the Ninth, but she was very unconvinced by Harrow. Uh, she, I think she quite liked Gideon, but she did not really get on with Harrow. <laughs> she, she went to download Nona the Ninth, and then she read in the thing, this is the third book in the four-book series, and she was like, no, this is not what best novel is for. This is why we gave you lot best series. Push off with your serieses. And this triggered a run, and that made me laugh quite a lot. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think Nona... Nona didn't... I, I just want half an hour of Espanya's opinions. Can we just have you record an episode with Espanya one day? what Espania thinks about the state of science fiction. I think it'd be fun. Yes. I only report the things that I think that will make you laugh. There are <laughs> things that would make you argue with her, and that's where the problem would arise. So one of the things that's interesting about the voter packet is that it's not complete. And, for example, Best Fanzine, where people did submit uploads to it, has not appeared in the packet. And there may be more, but I'm not sure. So it, it seems quite strange to me that it's complete in most areas, but not in others. Did one of you just say there's the whole Rivers of London nine books as long as you like PDFs? Yeah, that's what I said. I am I'm on NetGalley as we speak, 
which is bad form. I know I shouldn't do these things, but uh, I am doing. So, you know, there's that. And I am requesting the books, but I had to update my account because I created it before you needed to give them loads of information. But they have uh, basically when you log in, they're like, oh, you have to give us all the information. So I am now listed as John C forward slash media comma journalist, which is ludicrous. Yeah, I'm a serious book reviewer. Uh, there's no option for I just quite like books. I think that's what makes me. I think that what makes me a little bit sneery about using NetGalley, which is you shouldn't need to be anything other than someone who quite likes books to engage with the Hugo voting. You should not need to have an outlet. I should not need to give a URL of where I am going to discuss this book. And I, and, and I understand why NetGalley does that, because it is a book for reviewers to ask for copies of review books. But that is not what the Hugo's, there's no there's no implication of a quid pro quo of like, I will read this and might review it in the Hugo packet. You read it and might vote for it. So like, put it in or don't put it in, but the NetGalley thing is daft. Imho. I'm feeling very punchy today. Sorry. I'm very opinionated. I mean, is the NetGalley thing because they can do one of those like watermarked EPUBs that has all my details in or something? I haven't actually opened my NetGalley one yet, but if they did that, I guess that would kind of make sense, right? Like if you buy books off Verso Books, then they're all DRM free and they email them to you. If you go to request Sean and Maguire's books on NetGalley, you can just download them. You don't actually have to request them. They're just there. So like um, if you have been thinking about reading those, they just have a read it link rather than a request access link. Um, so that, that and that I think is that I'm fine with is the requesting bit that I find odd. I haven't read those and I think they're the only ones in best series I haven't read. Hmm, maybe I'll read one or two. Rosemary and Rue is fine. It doesn't take long and it's not like it's not so terrible you'll throw it across a room but equally I don't think it's good enough to merit winning an award. Site selection? Uh, Liz has written in the show notes site selection voting has started if you can manage it. Liz do you want to talk about that? Well I, I have not personally tried to vote in site selection because there's only one bid this year so it's not like they need my vote especially and it seemed like quite a lot of hassle because all the emails like went into my spam folder and basically interactions with the Chengdu website are basically oh yeah I'll do them if I have to but they're normally like oh maybe the certificate's broken or oh maybe this page doesn't load or oh maybe I can get a reset email for my password but I can never actually manage to log in in the time the password reset email is actually valid um you know Basically, it's a bit of a hassle, and so I haven't voted in site selection because I can't be bothered. Which <laughs> is not fair. But there is one bid. It is for Seattle, a place I have never been, but sounds quite nice. Seattle's amazing. <laughs> um, it would be in the brand new expansion to the conference centre in downtown Seattle. It hasn't been Seattle since 1961. It seems like a pretty good bid for a Worldcon and a pretty interesting place to have a Worldcon. And they've got a fun logo, which is presumably as close as you can get to the Starbucks logo without getting sued. But it'll look good on t-shirts. And so you can now vote for it. And I also got some emails which said that there would be like a Q&A session with the Seattle bid. Unfortunately, this Q&A session was held uh, yesterday and i fished the emails out of my spam bucket this morning but it's the thought that counts right it's just 
change is the endless problem. Like this is a perfectly reasonable email, but the problem is that the registration link obviously goes through doesn't go straight to a Zoom page or something. It goes to some kind of like link thing through their email, which presumably is used for nefarious purposes. And so Google thinks all of them are trying to steal my information. And so they always end up in spam and I just don't regularly check my spam enough. Fair. So I'm I'm very glad it's not a contested bid, actually, because I think if it was a contested bid and people were having lots of problems logging in and lots of problems paying, um, I think you can only pay using credit card, not like by cheque or cash this year. But I can't be long. Let me just check that one. I think this is 2023, right? It is 2023, but potentially people don't want to give their credit card details to a Chinese welcome. Yeah, so buy yourself a throwaway prepayment card and use that. Yeah, probably. But I mean, I've never tried doing that in uh, the US and I don't know how easy it is. And okay, it's a bit it's a bit different because you've always been able to like hand carry a ballot with some dollars in it, basically, if you really wanted to. And that this year, that's not going to be an option. Yeah. And I think like, yeah, probably. Yeah, you could say, okay, we're not going to take any cash or checks for site selection. Like, I think if Glasgow wanted to say now we are not taking cash or checks for site selection, you have to manage to pay through our online system or at the con. You could announce it now, but maybe you need to announce that one a little bit in advance for those people who don't have credit cards or don't wish to get a credit card. I mean, then they get a friend to pay for them and pay them back, presumably. There are ways around it, and I'm sure they will figure them out. So I guess it's good it's not in a contested bid year, but I have not joined yet. I'll join Seattle when they actually become the seated bid. I need to, before I go on my guff trip, spoiler for the next section, I am going to get a bra that contains no wire. Oh, yeah. Get one for travelling. You need a wire-free bra anyway. It was a pandemic. Yeah, obviously. I don't know why I hadn't worked this out before. I just like people feeling my tits in public. On the subject of Alison's tits, let's talk about guff. What's your guff plans, Alison? So, yes, um, it's happening. It's really, it's really, really, really happening now. I have booked almost all of my flights. I've booked almost all of my accommodation, though it's all, all the accommodation is cancelable. So if fans come out of the woodwork in the places where we've, where I've ended up booking hotels and say, no, 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 I can put you up, do not, do not stay in a hotel there, then booked a very exciting train up the east coast of the South Island of New Zealand. And I've booked a very exciting ferry across the Cook Strait, which is supposed to be the most beautiful ferry journey in the world. All my New Zealand friends say, when the weather is good, which is apparently a bit random. Um, But you know, I used to live in Scotland, I understand this. I have lots of plans to meet up with people. If you are in Melbourne, Sydney, Canberra, or if you're going to Conflux, um, which is the Australian NatCon, Adelaide, Christchurch, Picton or Nelson, which is quite near Picton, Wellington, Auckland or Perth, Get in touch. I mean, not if you're already in touch, because obviously a lot of these things are already sorted, but um, I'll be in all of those places. And in most cases, I'll be in those places for long enough that um, I can be fairly flexible about when I meet up. And I'm very excited by all of this. And I've got like side trips. And uh, there's one side trip I don't want to talk about because it's so exciting that if it happens, I'll be like, oh, I can talk about it now. Um, And and I'm going to islands and I'm going to um, tourist places and I'm going to fanish haunts. And I'm going to hear Justin Aykroyd singing a cappella music with men. Um, And wow, (laughs) It's it's just amazing. It's going to be amazing, guys. It's also going to be incredibly expensive. So, I mean, I'm sorry for the 
person who's going to come north in 2024 because um, there isn't going to be any funds. So I guess I'm going to have to start fundraising massively for that immediately after I get back from the trip. Them are, them are the rules. I mean, this is a serious thing, I think, is that as far as I can tell, flights in the post-COVID, flights in this kind of weird semi-post-pandemic flights have resumed time are drastically more expensive than they were in the pre-pandemic era. So just for that, basically, more, you're going to need more fundraising for every, every fanish trip. Internal flights don't actually seem to have gone up as much as I thought, but I think the actual flight to and from Australia is about, it's not quite doubled, it's about 80% more than I thought I was going to have to pay for that flight when I, when I ran in 2020. And hence, because Stephen's coming with me for three weeks, his flight is also, his flight's not quite as expensive as mine because I'm going by one airline to Sydney and I'm coming back by another airline from Perth. So, Oh yeah, that'll get you. One of my expensive things about this trip is that it's going to be the first time we think that a Guff delegate has taken a non-stop flight from Australia to the UK. So that's quite exciting. Ooh, God, that's going to be a long flight. Do you feel, do you like long flights, Alison? 17 hours, 45 minutes. I believe that I am going to test whether it's possible for me to sleep continuously for 17 hours and 45 minutes. And it might be because, I mean, I kind of look at the things I've packed into Perth on the grounds that I can sleep when I'm dead or rather when I'm on an aeroplane for 17 hours and 45 minutes. I, well, I hope it. I hope it's a very good trip. You're going to need a squishy bra. All I can say. I am going to get a squishy bra. But also, I, I'm quite good at sleeping on forms of public transport, so I'm hoping it's going to be OK. This probably can't go in the podcast. But one way you could raise funds is by auctioning the squishy bra at the end, having not washed it. That's disgusting. Oh and God. no. And also, the squishy bra would have been washed on multiple occasions during the trip. You can't, you can't tell me you don't think it might work. It, it could. There's a chance it would, it would work. I mean, you probably can put it in the podcast, but no, I have never, I have never, <laughs> any, you know, because I do quite a lot of eBay. And... So, Alison, will you be reporting on your golf trip on, you know, Live Journal or Twitter or your OnlyFans? <laughs> I tell you what, that is a good way to raise money for the fan funds, that is. The OnlyFans with discussion of the exact nature of the squishy bra. Only fan funds. <laughs> So, shall we do picks? Yes. We're going to make Alison go first on account of how she's got another non-SFNL pick. It's totally SFNL. Oh, hello. Oh, hello. Come on now. Yeah, no, actually, that's, that is fair. That is fair. All right, Alison, do your very, um, very relevant pick. So, so my pick is several crates of unsorted Lego, which is where my... <laughs> decluttering has got to and i was like i can take these what i should have done was go i have several i have found several unsorted crates of lego what i should do is put them to us to one side until much later in the decluttering process where i could then sort out the lego but in fact i went "Ooh, lego let me sort it out this will not take it long and i will generate order out of chaos it is it is it is it is one box of lego one crate of lego belonging to one of my offspring one crate of lego belonging to my other offspring and two castles which i thought were in two separate crates but appear to be in two crates 
each of which had bits of each castle in it in that helpful way. Um, and also a box or a crate of Bionicle, um, which has never been sorted. It was given to us as us kind of, here, have a crate of totally unsorted Bionicle. And it has stayed in that way. And I thought I would generate order out of chaos. But in fact, what I have done is generate several slightly smaller heaps of chaos, which is not necessarily a good outcome. But I have made... Um, one of the castles and and I was like because it's very straightforward you can buy the bits if there are a few bits missing I will sort everything out sort it into sets work out which bits are missing get all the spare bits profit and it turns out that one of the bits that's missing from this castle is a piece of hose lego hose that only existed in this castle yup and somebody in Denmark will sell me for £14. That's not happening. So I don't know. I'm leaving this as a maybe later, maybe it'll be somewhere else in my my child's bedroom. But I think what happens is that although we'd be very assiduous about not throwing away Lego ever, um, a random bit of plastic tube could easily have got thrown away. Are you sure that it is hose and it's not O's? O's? Have you considered looking for any tiny letter O's? in lego in your house this foreign listeners is a two ronnie's joke well if you cut it very fine with a knife because one of my one of my options for this hose is to get the same hose in roughly the same color and a bit longer and chop a bit off the end of it that might happen and then when they're like she did this they'll be like there's no proof and they will direct people to octothorpe episode 91 (laughs) hello future lego police it's good to have you with us yeah, so of course it is science fiction because the castles are from the 2006 to 2008 fantasy castle era of of um, Lego, which is fantastic. The castle I have built is the Dwarf's Mine, which is way better than any £40 Lego set has ever been. It, it, it's wonderful. It's got like it's got like little tippy crates full of golds that you tip, and and many like double headed axes and and just fantastic stuff. Liz, you got any Lego? Uh, I mean, not anymore. I did have a lot of Lego. I'm not entirely sure where the Lego ended up. I mean, it wouldn't have been thrown away, right? Because, yeah. No, I mean, it'll probably have been donated to some uh, younger children who wanted Lego, I think. Oh, yeah, I had tons. Very organised filing system as well. The Lego Knight's Castle, which is the one that like uses all the iconography from when I was a child, is £344.99. Yeah, it's about four times the size of the original Knight's Castle. Oh, yeah, but it's also four times the... And a lot of the new Lego, they've got a lot of, like, small little bits, but they don't they don't necessarily have the stuff that's so, you know, exciting about the, about the Dwarf Mine. The Dwarf Mine's, the dwarf mine's an awesome set. Um, it's amazing how much of it is still there, actually, given, you know, given the fact that it's got things like projectiles. Sorry, Liz, I interrupted your... Um, you were about to tell us all about... It's all right. No, I've got, I've got distracted by looking at Lego pirate ships now. Yes, this is the way. Yes, yeah, so, so one of the problems with this is that I don't feel, I don't really want to give children crates of unsorted Lego, but also my, my offspring feel like there is probably money in their, them, their hills, and they are probably right, even. But I'll know how much money after I've finished all the sorting. Liz. Yes. Oh, do you want my pick? Or I'm going to talk about Lego? Yes, please. You want my pick? Oh, okay. So I read a lot of books, and now I'm like, oh, which ones do I want people to... to to use my pick. I am going to go with The Mountain in the Sea by Ray Naylor, 
which was a Hugo nominee, uh, sorry, which was a Nebula finalist and also one of those books where I thought people were thinking it was a nailed on Hugo finalist and it was not, along with Babel, although that was even more nailed on. So The Mountain in the Sea is, I believe, the debut novel of Ray Naylor and it is about octopuses. Yay! More specifically, it is about, it's kind of a book about kind of the nature of intelligence and what it means to be intelligent and what it means to be conscious in a sort of near future setting. A lot of it is set on um, these Kondao Islands, which are a set of islands in Vietnam, which have now been kind of cordoned off from the world by a large tech corporation. Um, And the scientists get sent to investigate what is essentially an extremely intelligent octopus species living down there. Um, but there's also kind of the nature of artificial intelligence, of AIs, it's near future, you've got the hacking of AIs, you've got human slavery on these giant fishing ships run by AI that are sailing the seas. Um, it's a bit of a slightly dystopian future. And I quite enjoyed it. I think its main flaw is it, it does feel like someone read a lot of books on octopuses and was like, yeah, octopuses, they're super cool. I'm going to write a book about super intelligent octopuses, yay. And there's a bit much of that. And I'm not quite sure it gets the dna and evolution stuff quite right but i mean that is my problem with like all novels with dna and evolution as we've been through on the podcast before but it's good enough and yeah i quite enjoyed it it's a very good start and i would read more by ray naylor nice i've not heard of that one so um that is interesting is it as good as Adrian tchaikovsky's book about octopuses um no but it is short and standalone intriguing i mean i do like octopuses so you know that could work anyway now that i've started reading books i have i have um pull requested it from the library i guess a lot of these books are going to come in while i'm in australia you can always let the lapses expire and then just re-request them right but yeah but it's 65 pence every time john 65 pence you place a hold yeah that's almost when i place a hold for a physical book it's sixty five pence online. I think it would I think it would be free if I placed a hold at the library on a book that was in Waltham Forest. But I never place holds at the library, I always place holds online. Because it's not really worth sixty five P to me to queue up at the library desk. And then I should do my pick. We're in the sequence of the year where almost all of the reading I'm doing is for the Hugo episode. Uh and so um I have no good recommend like I have nothing to report there really. <laughs> I realise pick lego and i could have picked the wells i've left this i've left this for picks because it's not i guess it's not really directly octthorpe's uh remit and also i've been accused before of wanging on for too long about stuff i've read or played uh under the guise of not picking them. so this time i'm going to do it under the guise of picking them so i have played uh the spiel de yara's nominees for 2023 um i have not to be fair this is a slight lie because I have not played Fun Facts, because I cannot find an implementation of it or a copy of it anywhere I can access it, Uh, which is like, you know, it happens, but it is very slightly irritating. Um, But I have managed to play the other five. So I don't tend to bother with the um, Kinderspiel Diara, because that's like for um, younger games, and they're not usually my speed. So I have played challengers and icky and planet unknown and then i've also played dwarf romantic and next station london dwarf romantic and next station london were up for the spiel 
and Challengers and Icky and Planet Unknown were up for the uh, Kenner Spiel. And I enjoyed all of them, actually. Um, so Dwarf Romantic is based on a video game, which is out for PC and Switch. And I actually think the board game adaptation is better than the video game. Because the video game is infinite and you basically just keep going until you fail. But the board game is a bit more structured, which I like. And I kind of hope they will add a mode to the video game which recreates the way the board game works. Because that would be neat. I would be interested to play the board game more. Uh, the the TTS mod I used to play it does not have the uh, campaign elements um, in the mod. Uh, and so I would quite like to go to a board game cafe and see like how it unfolds as you continue to play. Because uh, I think that might be quite interesting. And Next Station London is a lovely little roll and write. Uh, it's very vaguely themed around London. Uh, like almost non-existently. Um, but it's got bright colours and it's about making trains on a little pad. So... I liked that one quite a lot. That's the game I played. Of all the board games I played in 2022, Next Station London is the one I played the most, about 12 times, I think. Mm. It takes about 10, five minutes, right? And you can play five games in a row. Yep. No, those are both true facts. I don't... Neither of those games would be good enough to end up in my collection, I don't think. Um, they're both, like, probably... Dwarf Romantic is probably a six, and Next Station London is probably a five. Like, I would play Dwarf Romantic again, but I can't see myself playing it a lot. And Next Station London, like, I'm glad I played it, but I probably won't go back because it's very light. I have better roll and rights, I think. Uh, Next Station London's on Board Game Arena, um, and that's a very good way of playing it. I was going to get to that uh, at the end. The other three games I played were Challengers, Icky, and Planet Unknown. Icky has a terrible rulebook, but the actual game is lovely. My friends really disliked the game because of how bad the rulebook was. And this is a salutary lesson in, if you are designing a game, make sure the rulebook does not make the game feel like a chore to play. Because I think the core gameplay loop of Icky is really good. And I think the rulebook does a terrible job of introducing you to it. But it's really nice. It's got beautiful art. Um, again, played that on uh, Tabletop Simulator. Uh, and then Planet Unknown is fine. It's got a lazy Susan. And I can't remember what Susan stands for, but it's an acronym and it's something like Space Utilization System something, something, something. Anyway, uh, and that's okay. It's like a tile laying game and you're drafting tiles, but where the tiles you can draft from changes because of the lazy Susan. Uh, and it's kind of interesting, but um, but a lot of plastic and kind of gimmicky. And then finally, Challengers, which won the um, Kennespiel. Uh, and that's a game where you draft a deck and then you play a tournament with your deck every round. But the tournament is basically you're just turning over the top card of your deck and doing what the card says. There's not really any... You're just kind of running your engine. And so most of the game is building your engine and then you run it to see if you've got a better engine than your opponent. Uh, and that one and Next Station London are both on Board Game Arena. Uh, and so... It's really good because once you get the hang of what's going on, it's very easy. The problem with Board Game Arena is that unlike with TTS where you have to read the rules and understand what's happening to manipulate the pieces, Board Game Arena you can just sort of start going and start clicking and sometimes it can be uh, unclear what is actually happening when you're clicking. And this is, this is something I think they could stand to address in slightly more detail. This is the Scott Kane family approach to board game arena so every tuesday night we pick a game that's not too complicated and we just start playing and at the point where steven is like oh god i have no idea what i'm supposed to do everyone else rolls their eyes and reads the rule book while they're waiting for him to play <laughs> but anyway so yeah good good group of games 
Um, good little group of games and, and would highly recommend looking out for them. Challengers might end up in my collection. I haven't decided yet, but it is quite an interesting little little game. And especially like, because like, I've got Sushi Go because I like drafting mechanics, but obviously like Challengers kind of takes the drafting to the place where like Magic has taken it, but without needing to know how the game you're drafting for works. Oh, that looks right up our street. Complexity 2 out of 5 plays with 4. That was the Thought Podcast. And it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Okay. And then we should stop recording and start again. Yes. I started reading the Lewis McMaster Bill Jold books with Cryoberm <laughs> because that was the one that was in the packet. And it worked fine. It worked fine. Like... People get very confused, but it's just, it turns out most authors don't expect you to have read literally everything they've ever read in the or- written in the order that they wrote it. No, and even when they do, part of the job of their editor is to make sure that there are... So that, that's... That's kind of brilliant, actually, though. I do like it because the thing with... I think the thing with Cryoburn is... Um, I hope I'm thinking the right one. Cryoburn is basically absolutely fine, but, like, the long-term fans would read, like, the last page and cry, and John would be like, yeah? <laughs> yep, this is exactly the conversation I had with Claire. She was like, isn't the last page sad? And I'm like, not really. Yeah, no, the, 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 the last page of Cryoburn is an absolute knife in the gut, you know? <laughs> and it's like... And it's like a knife in the gut that you, you've been knowing for some books was going to come. Anyway. Actually, no. So, okay. So it's time for another segment, which is uh, my mum and dad's approach to Marvel movies. Da, 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 da. Hey, jingle. Um, so basically, mum and dad are going to go see the Marvels. Very excited about this. They think it looks great. The MCU movies they have seen so far are Ant-Man and the Wasp. End of list. They liked Ant-Man and the Wasp a lot. They thought it was really good. Why did they go and see Ant-Man and the Wasp specifically? It's got Paul Rudd in it. But why don't they go and see Ant-Man? They were probably busy. (laughs) The theme music for this episode was Surf Shimmy by Kevin MacLeod and Combatech.com used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.